you would, turn again to Romans 13. This time I want us to look at the whole chapter as we continue talking about what's going on in our country and trying to understand how to look at it and how to respond to it biblically. I read a headline this morning that said, Divided We Stand. Cities across U.S. see nine of mayhem, marked by riots, fires, vandalism, fatal shooting. And so the question of the hour is, what are we as Christians to do in light of all this going on, in light of the pandemic, in light of the restrictions, in light of the violent protests, in light of the calls for various responses to injustice in our country? Well, it's hard not to think about things, especially in light of that headline and in light of other things that are going on, especially in places like Portland. Uh, Somebody commented on what's going on in Portland by saying, um, the political leaders there in Portland, Oregon, allow violent riots to fester for two straight months. And then when the federal law enforcement officers come in to try and stop buildings from burning and try to protect federal property, They are called the villains. And the comment that this person made was, it's absolute total insanity and, frankly, psychotic madness. They have abandoned what is their number one responsibility to protect people. As I prayed, in one sense, it's surprising. In another sense, it's not surprising because there are a lot of unseen, uh, excuse me, insane things being said and done these days and Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3 says the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives it's only the grace of God that keeps people from going into insanity insane thinking and insane actions for us as believers it We don't want to follow that insane thinking or those insane actions. And the way we maintain our own sanity, in a sense, is by looking at the Word of God and seeing what God has to say about what's going on. In Romans 12, at the very end, the last thing that Paul says before we get into Romans 13 is, he says, "...do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." Now, there are some things that he says right before that that are important on a personal level uh, that we need to do. But then he begins talking in chapter 13 about other things we need to consider, too, that are a part of overcoming evil. And the first thing he talks about is the government. And so I'm just going to read this section by section as we walk through this this morning. And we'll first start with the first seven verses, which we read last week as well. Verse 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, 
but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You note in verse 4, he says, the government does not bear the sword for nothing. And then in verse 6, he says, rulers are servants of God. And I want to focus on those two aspects of what he says there this morning. Many of you are familiar with William Wilberforce, who was... um, a British politician back in the 17 and 1800s. He gave his life as a politician, a Christian politician, working in government, especially working for the end of the African slave trade in uh, Britain. And his perspective was he approached politics and he approached his service in government truly as a servant of God. And he Uh, said that one of the things that was lacking in his day was that people uh, carried off their politics in such a way that they did not give a suitable reverence, excuse me, for the divine majesty. And he said that's where wisdom really begins, is that you revere God, and then, as a result, you can bring about um, deep and lasting good both spiritually and politically, if you have a deep reverence for God that impacts what you do as a politician. And he is a good example of what politicians are supposed to be doing. They are supposed to be servants of God. And they are to have a reverence for God because the only reason they're in power is because of God. He talked about the fact that the grand object of my parliamentary existence is the abolition of the slave trade. If it please God to honor me so far, may I be the instrument of stopping such a course of wickedness and cruelty as never before disgraced a Christian country. And indeed, God did use him to bring about the end to the African slave trade. He spent 50 years or so in government, and he worked tirelessly toward that end, and I think not very long before that come to pass. But the thing I want to emphasize with regard to William Wilberforce is This passage says government is a good thing, which doesn't mean all governments are good. The Nazis in Germany, that was not a good government. But that doesn't mean all government's bad, and we shouldn't have the attitude that, boy, I just wish there weren't any government. That's called anarchy. That's what a lot of people are arguing for today. And God says, no, uh, you think it's bad with imperfect governments? Let anarchy rule, and you'll just see how bad things can really be. And just go to one of these cities where there are people who are trying to implement that kind of philosophy, and you'll see how good government really is. That government is given to us by God in a fallen world to restrain the evil of man. Like last Sunday, I mentioned John Calvin, who said, in light of the law and government, Uh, Were we like angels, blameless and freely able to exercise perfect self-control, we would not need rules or regulations. Why then do we have so many laws and statutes, i.e., why do we have government? Because of man's wickedness, for he is constantly overflowing with evil. This is why a remedy is required. Now, obviously, Calvin would say the ultimate remedy is the gospel. But he would also say that government has been put in place by God to do exactly what These verses say, um, it does not bear the sword for nothing. 
which is a way of saying we need law enforcement, even to the point, I would argue, the sword in that day was uh, not simply a symbol of capital punishment, but it was a symbol of capital punishment. And sometimes they did exercise capital punishment. But it certainly was a picture of authority and law enforcement in that day and time. And so the whole idea that we should defund the police and we should dismantle the police and we'd be better off if we just had counselors who would talk with people and help them not to think that robbing banks and killing people is a bad thing. That's a delusion. How do I know that's a delusion? Not because I'm so smart. It's because God says it's a delusion. That's why we need government. We need government. We need law enforcement. We need laws because a sinful wickedness of man without restraint is going to do whatever uh, it feels like it needs to do to pursue its own happiness unless uh, it will find some consequence that they don't want. And so government is a good, good thing. But governments can certainly go bad, for instance, in Germany and in other places, when they begin to adopt what it says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So um, this passage does not argue for blind obedience to the government, but it does argue for a right, proper embracing of the principle that we do need government in our land and so it's not blind so there is a biblical there are biblical reasons for resisting uh, governments that are doing things outside their sphere there is a good uh, place for asking is this lawful in acts 22 uh, paul is about to be um, beaten with thongs and he looks at the guy who's about to do it and he says is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a roman and uncondemned And so Paul, at times, would not hesitate to challenge people in authority about whether or not they could lawfully do what they're doing. But there's so much more that could be said. We said a lot of that last week. I want to close this part of it by highlighting the fact that we need to embrace the fact that government plays a good role in punishing evil. And it actually says one of the primary ways God is a minister of good to us is by punishing evil. And when we say we don't want the government to punish evil, we want people to be free, um, that is not a good thing. But even within the church, that kind of idea is beginning to take, to take hold. Uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is a Southern Baptist seminary, there was um, a video that was done entitled How to Shepherd Your Church Through Issues of Racial Injustice. And four professors from that seminary commented on the looting and the various things going on in various places like Portland and and other places. And what they argued was these Baptist Christians, there's no reason to believe they're not Christians, uh, these professors, Baptist professors, they argue that you shouldn't focus on the what of what they're doing. Don't focus on the looting. Don't focus on the burning down of buildings. Uh, Focus on why. And um, basically they said, um, we need to show how the actions of the anarchists are understandable. We are not judging you on whether it is, excuse me, talking about the rioting or the looting. We're not judging you on whether it is right or wise. We are saying that it is symptomatic of something. We are affirming that this is wrong and it doesn't achieve whatever, 
but we don't want to demonize and vilify them like they're just doing this for nothing. Again, people don't respond like this all the time. So they're trying to walk a narrow road here that says, yes, what they're doing is wrong, but we need to focus on why they're doing what they're doing. They must be hurting people. Well, the guy that commented on this said, let's have a thought experiment. Let's apply that kind of approach to police brutality. And let's say, let's not get lost on the abusive behavior of police officers and focus on what they're doing, but rather let's focus on why they're doing what they're doing. Because that way we can show uh, the wound that the church can engage with and give a balm to heal. Now, how many people would say, yeah, let's do that. Let's not talk about the abusiveness in certain situations with regard to police brutality when it really does happen, and it does happen. I mean, police officers are sinners too. doesn't mean they're all doing it, but it does happen at times. question is, should we say, well, let's not focus on what they're doing. Let's just try to get to the bottom of why they're doing it and see if we can help them. Um, Proverbs 6.30 is the verse that this man brings up, and he says, Proverbs 6.30 says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. So there is a, reason, there is a, uh, a, a basis for saying, okay, why did this person do what he did? He stole this bread, and he did it because he was hungry. And we can sympathize with that. But he said, you need to read the rest of the verse, which says, but if he is caught... He will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. What does that verse mean? Should we sympathize with a a starving person who steals something? Yes. Do we erase the consequences? No. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, yes, there may be uh, reasons that people are rioting and looting that we can identify with and say, yeah, that... That's terrible that they've gone through what they've gone through. But that does not mean that there should not be just consequences for burning down a building or for shooting someone or for looting someone. He said, the person who steals food because he is starving rightly evokes more sympathy than the person who steals a 50-inch flat-screen television because Target has been turned into a looter's paradise. However, in both cases, they should receive a just consequence. And so that's, that's why our thinking is so off, because God says there is a rightful place in society for laws and for government and for law enforcement. And you don't just set aside the law because people are arguing that they have a good reason for shooting that person or a good reason for stealing that TV. Um, that's not a right way to approach it, and it truly isn't the loving way. And those leaders and, the, and those political leaders that are thinking that they're doing justice and they're loving people by not enforcing the law, God would say, you're not loving them, you're hating them. Love requires doing what I call you to do. And that brings me to the second section, verses 8 through 10, where it says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment 
of the law. And so notice in verse 9 where he makes the connection between all the commandments of God and loving. He basically says whatever God has commanded us, it ultimately fulfills the command to love our neighbor as ourselves, which means every commandment ultimately is a command to love. And so if I don't obey the command, I don't love. If I do obey the command as I should, then I am pursuing love. And that's important. William Tyndale um, lived back in the 14 and 1500s. He died young. He was a martyr. And he was also an English believer who gave his life to argue for and fight for and translate into common English the Bible. And at one point he was hiding from the king who was trying to arrest him. And he wrote uh, an appeal to the king of England And he said, I assure you, if it would stand with the king's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of scripture, he says, he goes on there and say, I won't write anything else. And you can, he says, um, uh, I will most humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or torture, yea, what death his grace will. So if you think about what he's saying, he's saying, King of England, if you will just let me uh, and authorize an English version of the Bible in common English so people can read it, you can torture me and kill me in whatever way you want. If you'll just agree to that, I'll, I'll give myself up. I'll, stop, I'll come out of hiding if you'll just give people the Bible so that they can read it. Um, There's one uh, man who commented on William Tyndale and said, I find him always singing one note. And that was the one note he sang. A a Bible in English so people can read it. He was actually strangled and burned at the stake. And his last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Why would someone like that think that this book is so very important for you and I to have in a form that we can read and understand. R.C. Sproul talks about a friend of his that he went to school with in seminary who later on said he didn't believe the Bible was inerrant and didn't believe believe it had errors in it and didn't have the authority that it had, that he thought it had before. And um, R.C. said, well, how do you follow Jesus? If you don't rely on the Bible and what it says, how do you follow Jesus? And he made some comment about, oh, I just listen to whatever the church says or whatever. But R.C. Sproul's point was, if you don't have the Bible, you can't listen to Jesus. If you don't have the Bible, you don't know what the will of God is. If you don't have the Bible, you don't know what justice looks like. If you don't have the Bible, you don't know what love looks like. And that's the point of this section in verses 8 through 10, is that... It's through the word of God that we actually see what love looks like. And if you're murdering a store owner, you're not loving. If you're stealing from a store owner, you're not loving. If you're murdering someone you're arresting, then you're not loving. In any case where murder is happening, in any case where stealing's happening, you're not loving no matter what might be your excuse for it. And so... The law of God, the word of God is crucial for us in evaluating those kinds of things because love cannot be defined by what people feel. 
I can't say, I know I've loved that person if they felt loved. Or I didn't love that person if they didn't feel loved. You remember Job. Job said at one point about God, talking to God, You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand you persecute me. Job did not feel loved by God. But God was loving him perfectly. Love cannot be defined by whether or not people think it's loving. This is what they said about Jesus, who was the personification of love. He never sinned, so that means everything he did was a loving action. Perfect love on display in every relationship, 24-7, every day of his life. And the religious leader said, he has a demon and is insane. He has a demon, that means he is out to hurt people. He's out to deceive people. He's out to destroy people. So love was interpreted as demonic. Love was interpreted as insanity. And if you think a little bit, you can hear that same kind of talk in our society, the way people are responding to each other and responding to what some Christians are doing as well. So love has to be defined by obedience to God's law. That's what it looks like. That's not all it is. Love is a desire for someone's good, a true heart desire that someone would have what is really good. And the law, the word of God, tells us how to pursue that, how to actually love them practically. So obedience to God is always loving, and loving always requires obedience to God. Um, Charles Hodge said, Since love delights in the happiness of its object, it effectually prevents us from injuring those we love and consequently leads us to fulfill all the law requires because the law requires nothing which is not conducive to the best interests of our fellow men. He, therefore, who loves his neighbor with the same sincerity that he loves himself and consequently treats him as he would want to be treated by him will fulfill all that the law commands. R.C. Sproul said, God's laws are not just moral rules or abstract mandates. They are rules of love. Last thing, last point. Well, before I go into the last point, let me just make one more point. There, there's a, it's a um, I guess it's a blog uh, called Women on the Web. And there's an article that you can find on their blog that says, Abortion, a Matter of Human Rights and Social Justice. I'll just briefly say that that article argues that social justice requires that women have the full opportunity and full right to abortion. We understand abortion to be the murdering of babies. Social justice says that is a right. Biblical justice says that is a travesty and an offense and a horrendous sin against God. We have to let the Bible tell us what is justice. We have to let the Bible tell us what is love because there are plenty of people that want to define it outside the Bible. Then the last point is um, we need the government... We need the guide of God's law, but we also need the gospel, which is the ultimate answer. Verses 11 through 14 says, Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. 
The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. How do you put on Jesus? What does it mean to put on Jesus? It means to be like Jesus. It means to do what it says in Second Corinthians 5, 9. We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And how do you do that? It all starts with the gospel. Uh, we have to trust Jesus. We have to trust his promises. We have to rely on what he's done for us. You don't just put on Jesus in your own effort or just by strength of will. It's a matter of grace through faith. It's a matter of salvation, of grace through faith. Um, Augustine is a great illustration of that. And I'll try to share this just briefly as we wrap up this morning. But Augustine, was uh, he lived back in the 300s and 400s A.D., a great father of the church in northern Africa. And um, But before he was saved, um, he would say, if, you, if you've ever read his confessions, which some, some have, um, it's all about his conversion, about he was enslaved to sexual promiscuity, as it talks about in this passage, and how he had a concubine for 15 years, and his mom wanted him to marry some legitimate person and arranged a marriage for him, and so he had to send the the uh, concubine uh, back home, and it broke his heart, and and he went and found another mistress, and and even though he was listening to the preacher Ambrose preach, and he liked to hear this guy preach, he was still enslaved to this sin. And one day he said he kind of flung himself beneath a fig tree, and he was just crying because he had this great torment in his soul. And he he said. Basically, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? And he heard this child saying, take it and read. Take it and read or take it up and read. Different ways it's translated. And he said, I took that as a word from God. And I went and found my copy of the epistles of Paul. And he played poke and hope. You know, I don't know if you ever played Poke and Hope. You open your Bible and say, okay, let me see what the word is for me today. That's literally what he did. He opened the Bible and opened up to Romans 13. He looked at the first verses that fell upon his eyes, which were verses 13 and 14 of Romans 13. And he read, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He said in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. It was the gospel that set him free. It wasn't the government. And it wasn't just the law that said, thou shalt not commit adultery. It was the gospel. That was the ultimate way of freedom for Augustine. And it's the ultimate way of freedom for everybody else. The government can help to restrain sin. And the law of God can also be used to restrain sin in various ways. But it's the gospel 
that sets us free from sin, from the guilt of it and from the power of it over our lives. There was someone who um, asked this pastor this question. He said, could you please comment on the difference between Christians fighting for the lives of the unborn and Christians fighting for the equal treatment of blacks in America? I've been talking with a black brother in my congregation, and this is frequently one of his criticisms of evangelicals. He'll say that when it comes to racism, we say, just preach the gospel. But when it comes to abortion, we'll join protests, we'll advocate for legislation, etc. Thank you so much for your ministry. And this was this minister's response to that question. Here's the difference, and it's not a subtle one. We don't have any laws about murdering the unborn, and so we need some laws against that slaughter. We advocate for legal reform because legal reform is what is needed. But when it comes to the laws requiring equal treatment for blacks and whites, we already have the laws. I would say if there are instances where that's not being applied appropriately or where there, there needs to be more clarification, then we should pursue that. But in general, I think that's a, that's a true statement. We don't need to urge the passage of a law because such laws, however poorly written, and I think he's acknowledging the weakness at, in places, such laws are already on the books. So the problems that remain are heart problems, sin problems, which can only be addressed with gospel. So if there are weaknesses in our laws, then we need to shore that up. If there are weaknesses in policies and practices and following the law, then we need to shore that up, no doubt about it. But ultimately, the issue is gospel when it comes to race relations in our country at this point. That's the most important issue, and it's ultimately the issue for every situation in our country. Only Jesus saves. The government doesn't save, and just the law. The law doesn't save. It's the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. And the good news is he's an able and willing Savior for all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us to see what your word says and how it applies to our situation. Help us to support the proper role of government and to support the proper function of law enforcement. Help us to submit our lives to your word and submit our definitions of love to your word. Help us to spread the gospel that reconciliation, true reconciliation might take place and that hearts might truly be changed and set free. Deliver us, Father, from the insanity that's filling our country in so many ways and help us to truly love as you've called us to love. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.